their argument is we know our communities best. You know, we know we know where people live. I mean, that's that's their surface level argument. That also means that they they know their voters and they know who's going to <laughs> reelect them, right? Um, A robot don't know the community like <laughs> Alderman knows their community. Exactly. Exactly. Hello, welcome to a very special holiday episode of the Cloudcast. I'm Alex Nitkin, and I'm not exactly your host this week because instead of doing our typical interview with a newsmaker in Chicago or Illinois government or politics, my colleague, Daily Line reporter Aaron Haggerty, and I just decided for what is now our 25th episode of the Cloudcast to sit down and look back at the year that was in Chicago government. We talked about four of what we consider to be some of the biggest city council issues of 2021 and beyond. Those are, number one, the long march to a civilian police oversight commission. Number two, the ongoing Decennial Ward remap. Number three, the city budget and American Rescue Plan spending. And finally, the issue of aldermanic prerogative and the city council's relationship with Mayor Lightfoot. In all four of those topics, we tried to both cast backward to the year that was and forward to what we'll be watching in 2022. So here is our conversation, which we recorded last Wednesday, the 22nd. How you doing, Aaron? I'm good. I'm good. Really, uh, really ready for this year to wrap up and see what, what exactly uh, 2022 has in store for us. Uh, Just like we were saying at the end of 2020, this has been such a terrible pandemic year. We're going to turn the page. We're going to move on. It's going to be a whole new year. Um but here we are. It is just about the end of 2021. We're going to look back today and uh, at what we think were some of the biggest, most important stories within the city council and Chicago government generally and how they're going to carry forward into the new year. So one of the biggest things that we were following, you know, at this time last year and has taken a, you know, long and, and treacherous uh, and ultimately important, you know, victorious at least initially, of course, through the first part of this year was one of Mayor Lori Lightfoot's core campaign promises, which was to deliver a civilian oversight commission um, of the Chicago Police Department. This is something that initiative that she had been part of going back to the post Laquan McDonald um, Police Accountability Task Force Commission that she had headed up. And it was really a centerpiece of her 2019 campaign. Um, and you know, this time last year, it had really just been on hold. So I want to spend some time recapping a little bit and talking about how it got to the ordinance that passed in July. But first, um, you have a new story that came out on Thursday about um, what happens now. It feels like, you know, this was such a big thing. It finally got across the finish line in the form of an ordinance in July. And then it seems like it sort of dropped out of the city's consciousness since then, you know, pushed out by COVID and public safety and all these other things. Um, but the clock is ticking and, and they've already missed some deadlines on this that were set out in the ordinance, right? So yes, the ordinance passed in July um, and there was a deadline of November 1st of this year. Um, and by then the the citywide commission that's created in this uh, civilian oversight ordinance, it was supposed to be fully staffed um, by by November 1st. So fully staffed, if you look, you know, through the budget book, that's about um, 13 different positions um, that were supposed to be, you know, in place or, or I guess, you know, maybe mostly in place um, by November 1st. And from all I can tell, it is not fully staffed. It is not even uh, partially staffed from what I've heard, which, which hasn't been actually a whole lot that I've, I've heard. And, and so this is just to clarify here, 13 full-time support staffers who are working underneath the seven volunteer or kind of semi-professional uh, members of the Citywide Accountability Commission? Yes, that's correct. The The Citywide Commission that is, you know, tasked with, you know, approving policy for the, for the police department and, you know, potentially, um, you know, taking a vote of no confidence in the superintendent. So, so that's not um, staffed yet, um, and that was the November first deadline. And then by December first, and this is all, like I said, in the ordinance that you know passed five months ago and was you know drawn up by by aldermen and, and proponents of um, a civilian oversight board. Um, by December first, there was um, 
there was supposed to be a list of 14 candidates for an interim um, citywide commission that the city council's rules committee was supposed to um, have approved and sent to Mayor Lori Lightfoot um, for her consideration. And the mayor with that list is supposed to pick um, seven members to appoint to this citywide commission. The rules committee has been busy uh, because they are in charge of the citywide uh, ward remap that is currently underway. Another of those major 2021 stories. And uh, yes, it looks like a big 2022 story that we're going to be talking about uh, in a minute. So this has been a charge of the rules committee to do this, and they just haven't been after it. So what happens next? So um, I talked to Alderman Harry Osterman, and he told me that backers or lead sponsors of the ordinance that sets up this civilian um, oversight commission, they will have posted um, applications for anyone who wishes to, or who meets the qualifications and who wishes to be, um, you know, considered to be a member of this citywide commission. I mean, this would be an, an interim commission um, that's, you know, appointed right. by the rules committee this way and then selected by by the mayor. So those applications are supposed to be up um, as we're recording this, it would be next week. So the week after Christmas, you know, the week between Christmas and New Year's, and then they would move forward from there. I, I don't know, you know, exactly how long they will keep applications open. Um, but it's kind of been suggested that, you know, they've already missed these two deadlines in this deadline, especially in, um, you know, getting this list of potential members for this commission to the mayor. So so maybe they, you know, do this right and, and really draw up a good application, consider applicants and, you know, you've blown a deadline. Why not make it, <laughs> you know, do good work? So this really is, in a big way, a city council responsibility. Um, and you say the main sponsors of the ordinance, the people we're really going to be wanting to, to watch are Alderman Harry Osterman, uh, Roderick Sawyer, Leslie Hairston, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, and then Chris Taliaferro, who's the chairman of the Public Safety Committee, who's had a huge role in this. Um, so that's what we're going to be looking at going forward. Let's rewind a little bit to talk about how it got here and the long and, and winding course that this ordinance took to get to the finish line. Um, I want to refer listeners back to um, our article that we wrote uh, back in July. Um, we can put uh, a link in the blurb here, but it was essentially a, um, you know, a map that we drew of the March 2020 negotiations that were happening around um around the civilian police oversight ordinance. This was something that we understand to have been a really top priority for the mayor's administration as soon as it came into office. Um, you know, the staff had a, a literal calendar and, and board on the wall. How are we going to get this done uh, within the first 100 days? And it involved a lot of negotiations with, with GAPA, the group that they were working with at the time, the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability. And it all sort of culminated with it seemed like they were about to get to a vote um, on March 11th, 2020, all of this happening, of course, in the backdrop of this strange, unprecedented global pandemic that was descending down upon all of us. And it essentially uh, broke down on this question of who would have the ultimate tie-breaking power when the police department disagrees with whatever this commission is going to be. The, the mayor and you know her staff and city attorneys wanted to keep that power. Um, and the commission was saying, no, that's the whole point, is that a third party has to have that power and the civilians have to have that power. So that sort of sent everything back into a tailspin. Obviously, you know, the pandemic threw everything else off of everyone's plate and everything just focused on that. Um, and then the next, I think, revelation or step in that came in September, late September, early October 2020. Um, when uh, we're in a, a press conference or an, or an event, and, and I actually got the chance to ask, what is next? What's happening in these negotiations, Mayor? And she said, we're moving on from GAPA. We're not working with them anymore. We're just going to do our own independent idea. We're going to put out our own draft. So then, you know, months pass. It is 
January 2021 at this point? And where where do things stand? Can you describe what this sort of like holding pattern was at this point where the ordinance was? So I just want to point out one thing that is like very, I, I didn't think about this until I started thinking about this, but we started off the year with GAPA and CPAC, which were two, com- two competing proposals from different right. coalitions of aldermen and and advocates for civilian oversight. Um, we started off 2021 with both of those proposals kind of competing for, um, you know, competing to win as the ultimate uh, <laughs> civilian oversight package that the city council passed. Um, right. So the mayor's administration was working with GAPA, and then there was also CPAC, the Civilian Police Accountability Commission. Can you just briefly explain what you know, generally the difference was between the two? Yeah. So, I mean, for what it's worth, the the ordinance that was approved this year in, in July, it it still reflects GAPA quite a bit. Yeah. At um, its core, it's basically yeah. based on GAPA. But um, CPAC would have allowed a lot more uh, direct oversight from this civilian commission and would have given them, you know, the ultimate final say um, in, in policy and in setting policy and, you know, basically booting the um, the superintendent, which um, that was considered to be more... Um, more radical, more direct, more empowering. Yeah. More empowering of the people as its, you know, sponsors <laughs> probably would have said and did say um, because it had direct elections to the commission, right? And, and right. they were staffed with like fully professional um, members who would be making six-figure salaries, and that would be their whole job is to keep tabs on the police department. So uh, the next, I think, momentous step for this was when CPAC and GAPA merged, right? Which was February, I believe. It was sometime in like the late winter, or early spring, um, and so they announced that they were working together to come up with kind of a, a compromise ordinance. Um, and ultimately, what we saw out of that compromise ordinance was kind of like a melding or a choose your own adventure kind of uh, option <laughs> combining the two where where at the core again this um, you know ordinance was GAPA but it gave um, the option for a a referendum so voters would be able to choose uh, basically do you want to stay with GAPA this GAPA proposal or do you want to go to the more do you want to enable CPAC to happen um, and that, I mean, it seemed to satisfy a lot of, you know, advocates for civilian oversight. Um, but I know that there were some questions of like, how would that work? Is this yes. entirely legal? How, like, there were there were a lot of kind of logistical questions around that voter referendum portion of the ordinance. Um, I think we have seen, especially through the remap, that any prospect of a creating a new election, creating a new elected body is going to create a lot of questions and angst and agitation among the elected officials who are already there and already have the power. We're seeing this play out in the remap. We're seeing it play out, you know, through the civilian oversight ordinance and why it took so long, obviously seeing it play out through or saw it play out through the years-long debate over an elected school board in Chicago. It's an incredibly difficult proposition. How do you split up the power? How do you s- split up the the constituent districts? You know, how is the Board of Elections going to handle it? And so, as I recall, you know, this was the uh, compromise that was able to get CPEC and GAPA together into the, the ECPS, the Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance, so that they, it was a very good move politically, right? Suddenly they had a coalition. This was the people's ordinance that was together against the mayor. Um, But there were a lot of aldermen, including I think a majority of aldermen on the public safety committee, which was the critical sort of gatekeeper to getting this passed, who saw that referendum option as really toxic. They really believed that if anything was going to have to be a GAPA model and the CPAC model wouldn't fly, and they just were not prepared to try to campaign for that in an election. They thought that would be a disaster. So um, eventually, I think it was when May that we finally got a proposal, this long-awaited proposal from the mayor. Yeah, and we were we were waiting for a very long time for that. And I know, you know, I was, you know, every time there would be a public safety committee meeting or you know the 
combined uh, ECPS ordinance would come up, I'd you know email the the mayor's office and ask when the proposal was coming. And it was is always, it time? Like, it's it'll be coming soon, and uh, soon is relative, I guess. But but yeah, it it was not her proposal was not very um, warmly received by um, you know backers of uh, the combined ECPS ordinance, um, and I mean. It kind of, it looked very similar actually to GAPA and thus, you know, most of the ECPS mm-hmm. ordinance. And I think that was another time where we saw aldermen accusing the mayor of basically taking their work um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and using it um, in her own proposal. But, but we can't forget again that the mayor was like originally working with GAPA. So I... Right. And we should be clear, it was very, her proposal was very similar to GAPA, except that it left all ultimate power in her hands to the point that a lot of people were, you know, I think accurately calling it, oh, this is a, um, uh, an advisory body that you're going to set up. It's not an actual, uh, you know, oversight force with jurisdictional power. I think that Andre Vasquez, who, Alderman Andre Vasquez, who was also very involved in these negotiations, called it something like, you know, Gappa, but without any teeth, or just sort of like a mushy yeah. version of Gappa. Um, Gappa light was my favorite. Gappa light, <laughs> that's right. So that was what was carrying forward. We get into July, and at this point, everyone is so tired of dealing with this. It seems like this big, intractable, intractable political mess. The only thing everyone can really agree on is we need to get this done. Again, feels a, a little similar to the remap. Um, and there's just this recognition of, right, we can't go into the August recess without having done this. So how did, how did it all come crashing together? I mean, it's a little bit of a blur and pandemic time is a little bit hard to remember, but what's your recollection of, you know, how, how the mayor reached a compromise on this? So it was, I mean, there were a lot of public safety committee meetings scheduled and I, I think, you know, there was, there was a... This is how I recall it. There was a public safety committee meeting uh, on a Friday and it ended kind of, you know, there was no decision. There was no vote. And then I think after that weekend, the mayor was in negotiations with, um, you know, Alderman who who sponsored the ECPS ordinance and came out of that weekend. And ultimately, the public safety committee passed essentially the, the ECPS ordinance uh, in a 12 to 8 vote to get it out of committee and send it to the full city council floor. But um, that, of course, was not with its own shenanigans because um, there was a new version of the ordinance that had to be submitted. Um, It wasn't submitted in time. So the substitute ordinance wasn't actually posted. But Mm -hmm. some aldermen who are generally pro police blocked the um, ordinance from being considered because the, it, you know, the substitute ordinance wasn't posted, which is usually not, uh, or the new version of the ordinance wasn't posted. And usually that does not uh, stop aldermen from approving voting on, on things. So it was clearly some shenanigans maneuvering going on to, to delay a vote, but it did ultimately pass out of committee, uh, Right. And we should note that the eight who were against it were all sort of aldermen from from very police heavy wards and who were more on, you could sort of say the, the law and order side of things, who said that it was, you know, folks like uh, Alderman um, Nick Spizzato and Anthony Napolitano and, and that crowd. So then it, talking, let's just talk about the sort of final product and then we, we can move on from this. It was basically, I think, the provision that got added that, that got the ECPS crowd to agree was essentially the mayor would continue to have veto power over any decision that is 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 reached between the commission and the department except the city council would be able to overrule her veto with a two-thirds vote right um right and that's i mean that's not anything new like they can yeah they can overrule a veto but yeah I remember thinking at the time that was really, it seemed like a real victory for for the mayor, that it was very close to her proposal for it. Just because if you think about getting 34 aldermen lined up against the mayor on anything, that seems like a very, very tough proposition. I mean, 
she has struggled to get to, you know, only 22 or 23 against her. Um, but getting 34 against her just seems pretty much impossible with the city council. So none, none of this matters anyway, if they don't get anything staffed up and actually going. So Yeah, and I just wanted to add the one one thing that I heard when talking to, to Alderman about this as it was passed or right before it was passed. It's like, okay, so this gives the mayor veto power. Like, aren't you, are you, do you feel like you're giving anything up? Like, you're giving her power to do this. And and their argument was basically, like, is that would look really bad politically for the mayor to to veto something that's approved by this um, commission. But, because I, I mean, she still has not vetoed. She hasn't, she hasn't vetoed anything yet. So, but yeah, I think that's a fair point that if she does, or if she did, veto a decision that is made by this um, indirectly elected body that she had championed in her campaign, that would probably look bad. Would it prevent her from doing that? I, I don't know. Um, but it's a fair point to keep in mind. So we've been we've been hinting at it here. Let's talk about the remap. Um, I want to refer people back to our very first podcast that we did in, you know, very beginning of January 2021. We talked to Alderman Brian Hopkins, uh, the alderman of what is widely recognized as probably the most gerrymandered ward in the city of Chicago. Um, he had an idea on how to approach the remap a little bit differently. It would have seemed at the time that he was backed up by the mayor on that based on her previous statements. Um, tell me about your conversation with him. Yeah, so it's pretty incredible to think that this is basically a year ago now. Um yeah, Alderman Brian Hopkins of the Second Ward, uh, he and Alderman uh, Andre Vasquez submitted this, I think it was a resolution calling for uh, hearings on an independent mapping process. So he's thinking, you know, months ahead, obviously. this I don't even know that the remap was on most people's radar. But he wanted to start early a conversation on having, you know, taking Alderman out of the picture and drawing the city's 50 wards and Basically, he he wanted a computer. He wanted software to draw um, ward boundaries, and and that would. I mean, I've never seen it done, but that sounds pretty interesting to me. And and computers, you know, aren't up for re-election, so the thought behind that would be, um, you know, take all the politics out of out of drawing ward boundaries. Um, the idea is that you could have like an algorithm. You could put in inputs, which is like neighborhood boundaries, demographic groups, you know, rivers, expressways, other natural boundaries like that. And you could just sort of punch them in and then have it give you something, right? Right, right. But then, you know, surely that doesn't take into account, like we've got to draw this weird arm of this ward so that this alderman stays in, you know, their ward so that they, mm -hmm. you know, could potentially be elected. And um, yeah, it, it takes all the... <laughs> It would remove all of the political calculations from the process, which many would argue is the whole point. Um, but for someone who, you know, their main goal is to stay in power and to be reelected, they're just not going to give up that power willingly. Um, so over the next couple of months, we were very interested in the remap and it seemed like the city council was just not. It was just not on their front burner. It wasn't their priority. One, there was another good podcast episode that we did that you did specifically, Aaron, talking to Alderman Jason Irvin, chairman of the Black Caucus, and Alderman Roberto Maldonado, then chairman of the Latino Caucus, who were giving their arguments for um, keeping the process in the city council's hands, right? And so I think this was really instructive because this is like why, you know, Hopkins and Vasquez's idea never went anywhere. And by the way, we should also mention Lightfoot's campaign promise that she would try and, you know, wrest control into a uh, independent commission. What is the alderman's argument for keeping this power? I mean, their argument is we know our communities best. You know, we know we know where people live. We know the community boundaries that don't show up on a map. Or, you know, everyone who lives on this block goes to this school and and has these you know same interests and same needs. Um, so that's their, I mean, that's, that's their surface level argument. That also means that they, they know their voters and they know who's going to <laughs> reelect them. Right. And 
Um, a robot don't know the community like an <laughs> alderman knows that community. Exactly, exactly. And you know, when you're, I mean, they have they have an interest, right? I, the Black Caucus came out strong pretty early, saying that they wanted to keep the number of majority black wards that they have currently. Right. And I don't know that a well, I don't know what a computer would have drawn, but yeah, I mean, maybe it would have drawn something that was actually that was really in line with the city's actual demographic breakdown, which is pretty much. Uh, you know, 30, 30, 30, and then 7% Asian American. And we should say, I mean, ultimately, that proposal that Hopkins and Vasquez submitted, there still has been uh, no hear. There hasn't been a hearing on uh, independent mapping like they like they called for. There was one that was scheduled, but one of the presenters, you know, was ill, so he wasn't able to attend. So um, he's still kind of you know, when I talked to him a few weeks ago, he's still kind of hoping that that hearing will be scheduled as he looks, you know, toward the next remap, which is 10 years away. 10 years from now, yeah. But who knows? Who knows what the world it's, will be like then? I mean, it's sort of the perfect position for you to be in as a current sitting alderman being like, yes, this is a great idea. Let's consider it for 2031. Mm-hmm. So basically, that seems like it went nowhere, at least for now, which again, it's it's surprising on one level. Um, considering how much it would seem popular support there is for it and support from the mayor, utterly unsurprising on another level when you think about, you know, it's literally asking the city council to take power out of its own hands. Um, so essentially, the remap, we spent months and months, uh, and aldermen know this, bugging aldermen every time we saw them the whole year, being like, hey, what's going on with this? Have you heard anything about this? What are your priorities in the remap? Um, we were repeatedly told, oh, it's still very preliminary. We're really not thinking about that yet. Pretty much up until like budget season, until um, October, November, when we the clock was really starting to come up on this December 1st deadline to um, have something voted on with 41 votes. Otherwise, they would risk a, a referendum. And it really seems like it did not kick into gear until after budget season, with the exception of you, so you were talking about the Black Caucus proposal, not even proposal, just from the very beginning, they were adamant they were going to keep the number of majority black wards that they had at, at 17, 18? 18. I think it's 18. Um, if- 18 if you count the 27th ward, right. which is about 45% black, which they consider sort of a black influence ward. They were stuck to that. And then in October, the Latino Caucus makes a kind of unorthodox move, right? Yeah. So the Latino caucus uh, submitted their own fully drawn map proposal, which uh, irked some people, including the mayor, uh, because that was kind of viewed as, you know, this is what we're demanding. Let's move on from here. But this is the map we're going to be working from. Um, And the Latino caucus, I mean, Alderman Gilbert Villegas, who is the chair of the Latino caucus um, said, you know, we wanted to get a proposal out there. There's no, you know, rules committee map proposal out there yet. We want to work out in the open. This is our starting point. This is our first proposal. Let's talk. Let's meet. We're willing to, you know, work on stuff based on this map. Um, And, you know, I've, I've asked around and like, I don't know if that's I mean, there is no normal is what I found in, in ward remapping, but it sounds like usually most of the, the mapping is done in the map room. And this, this was taking a different track. This was doing, creating a proposal outside of, of the map room where aldermen are invited to, you know, go in, draw their wards and, and talk to- Work out their differences amongst themselves. Yeah. It's interesting to think because, of course, the backdrop to all of this was that Illinois Senate and House Democrats- were essentially, they were working out their own boundaries in their own map room. And they did manage to keep everything, we still do not know about almost any of the internal conflicts among all of the different Illinois legislative Democrats, because they really did keep a tight lid on it. It all happened behind closed doors while Republicans were, you know, holding press conferences and pointing to the locked door. They, They basically, you know, for the most part, pulled it off. I mean, at this point, as we're recording this, we're still waiting on a court ruling to see if that's going to stand. But they carried that through to the passage of the new map. And I think when we heard Michelle Harris, the chair of the Rules Committee, say, bring all these conversations into the map room. Come, we'll collaborate. We'll, we'll talk about it. 
she was really saying like, that's the way we're supposed to be doing it. We're supposed to be doing it behind closed doors and in private, like our counterparts in the Illinois General Assembly have been doing. And it was, I think, a very, it was a bold strategy. It was a different strategy um, for the Latino caucus to come out with its own complete map. I I think that for a lot of aldermen, it, it backfired. There were a lot of other alders who said, you know, that was sort of like an act of bad faith. Like they were going outside of the usual process and, and doing it for their own sort of cynical means. Um, obviously, the Latino caucus would argue otherwise, saying we're trying to shine a light on a very untransparent process. I think it really remains to be seen whether that strategy backfired. And it, you know, if we do actually come to a referendum, maybe they will have the advantage of having come out with their um, map first because it seems like the rules committee and specifically Michael Casper, the you know legendary Mike Madigan's election attorney who has been brought on by the rules committee to manage the internal you know map room official rules committee process, has been had been for a long time trying to piece a map together by only letting aldermen look at their own individual wards and their own individual boundaries. And some folks have said, well, that's a smarter strategy because it's just when you have everyone focused on their own wards and their own interests, then there's just less to fight about and it's, it's easier to get something across the finish line. I think what that doesn't account for is that, and there are a lot of new, especially freshman aldermen and progressive aldermen who see things more from a citywide perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is a, a disruption in the city council in a lot of other ways and other issues that folks are not necessarily as parochial and just focused on their own wards, that they're really, you know, Byron Sikja Lopez, for example, um, has said repeatedly, I'm not going to approve anything until I see what it looks like on the whole city. I want to see whether it's fair for the whole city, which I think is is really a departure from the way that this process and a lot have gone in the past. So this is all to say where we are now, um, we have two competing maps. We have a Latino caucus map. We have an official rules committee map. Um, for anyone who's interested in a long, detailed breakdown of the differences between the two maps, um, I invite you to go back and watch our episode of the Press Box from uh, last month where we, and that was actually this month, wasn't it? That was uh, earlier in December, but the most recent one, (laughs) they're all on YouTube, um, can look through that. And we talked to Bert Odelson, who's the Latino caucus election attorney, but essentially it seems like this is on ice for the holidays, right? I mean, what's your understanding of where this stands now? So it's like a giant pause. Um, You know, the, there was no map voted on by December 1st, which was the de- the quote unquote, you know, critical deadline that that by which all were supposed went. to <laughs> vote on a map. Um, and there were a few uh, public hearings scheduled on the wardroom map, no votes scheduled. And uh, Michelle Harris, who chairs the rules committee, basically said, OK, um, we're going to. Yeah. We're going to take a break from from these discussions um, for the holidays, which you know has been largely the month of of December, and there are now um, some going to be some hearings scheduled uh, in January when aldermen are expected to come back and I guess get get right back into discussions. Um, I talked to her. I talked to Michelle Harris last week, and she said she hopes that this kind of break provides a kind of cooling off period and and that things can kind of simmer um i don't know i don't know that taking you know a few weeks off from this is going to (laughs) magically sway aldermen to work together um but i am very interested to see what these hearings look like um in january and and to see if anything i mean aldermen are not invited to go you know into the map room right now um during this break so um I'm interested to see if and when anything changes and yeah, how this cooling off period affects negotiations. Whether everyone will just get into the loving holiday spirit and and maybe give up some of their territory that they wouldn't otherwise. I think that to me, the critical question at this point is, is there really a wide enough and, and deep enough incentive for aldermen to avoid a referendum? Um, or at, is it really in the interest of some members of the Latino caucus, particularly, I don't know, a particular chairman of the Latino caucus who's now running for Congress, um, Gil Viegas, is it in their interest to have a referendum? Um, we've heard some folks on the Rules Committee map side of things 
make a, the sort of you know cynical calculation that like oh obviously they want a referendum because it's going to just boost Latino turnout in the city. I I don't really know. They still everyone says that they're still at the table that they want to avoid a referendum, but I think that's the question: how much, how badly do forty one aldermen want to avoid a referendum? Let's move on to talk about one of the other big stories from this year. In 2020, a big story was how was the city going to manage a massive loss of revenue that was incurred through the COVID-19 pandemic, and how were they going to cut and financially maneuver their way into a 2021 budget? The question in 2021 has been uh, better for the city, but no less difficult, which is how do we spend $1.9 billion dollars that has essentially fallen from the sky. Um, in other words, come from the federal government in the form of the American Rescue Plan Act. The city was on pins and needles for months and months, wondering whether more federal aid was going to come. Um, finally, in March, it did. The American Rescue Plan Act guaranteed this huge amount of money for governments up and down the country and the state, 1.9, give or take, for the city. And you know, we were asking the mayor for a long time, how do you want to spend this money? And she was very tight-lipped, right? She, the thing that she kept bringing up was, you know, we're not going to do another parking meter deal. It's sort of the same thing that she said again, that infamous, you know, blunder of municipal policy from 2008, selling off the rights to the city's parking meter revenue. Um, but she was sort of stalling and saying, we're going to work on this behind the scenes. We're going to take our time. And meanwhile, Alderman had other ideas, right? Yeah, so a group of... Progressive aldermen submitted their own, again, fully detailed plan for for how to spend, um, for how to spend the money. And they were saying, "Let's get, you know, we have we have all this money. People are in need. Let's get it out now." But that didn't. It, it focused a lot on, you know, I think it was a lot on housing and kind of family direct, you know, support for for families and households in need. Um, and this that, was called the Chicago Rescue Plan, right? This came out over the summer. Yeah, and and Alderman uh, Daniel Espada, first ward, I think was the main the main sponsor on that. But that, right? And they, you know, Alderman referred to that as how they wanted the you know the stim- stimulus money to be spent, um, but it didn't. I mean, it didn't go anywhere. Um, I mean, it didn't go anywhere technically, but if you look at um, the mayor's. Mayor Lightfoot's ultimate, uh, what was Chicago recovery, plan. Chicago recovery, totally plan. different, very than similar, similarly named to the Chicago rescue plan. Um, a lot of what was in that initial proposal from those aldermen mm-hmm. made it into, um, the mayor's basically Eventual proposal that came yeah, out proposal that, that passed alongside the budget. Um, and that, yeah, it included some like programs, even that, I mean, notably was the guaranteed basic in- income program that, um, again, Alderman Gil Villegas had, had proposed. Um, to- so this is in, I want to say, March, like right at the time that ARPA actually passed. Villegas comes out with this first in the form of a resolution and then ultimately an ordinance saying, uh, you know, this uh, direct checks to American stimulus checks has worked so well. It's been such a good idea, both in terms of government policy and politically. Um, we should be doing this in Chicago and was really going hard on this proposal for $30 million set aside from the ARPA funds to be used on a guaranteed basic income program, a 12 month, you know, several thousand families would be selected guaranteed basic income monthly checks. And the mayor at the time, again, was very resistant and she didn't directly weigh in. But one thing that I remember specifically her saying was, we want to be careful. We don't want to just throw money around, which I interpreted at the time as sort of throwing shade on guaranteed basic income. And then lo and behold, the Chicago recovery plan comes out and it has a $31.5 million proposal for a uh, regular guaranteed basic income pilot you know, selecting several thousand families um, and and very similar. And also a lot of the same, I'm going to try and bring up some of the, the top line numbers, you know, $158 million for affordable housing, 157 for direct assistance, including that 
direct uh, direct payment um, stuff, 108 million for um, public health, 101 million dollars for climate investments, environmental justice, homelessness, you know, youth job opportunities. These are all things that were really prominent and showing up a lot in the Chicago Rescue Plan. Um, I think the biggest difference is that the numbers were a lot lower in the Chicago Recovery Plan than they were in Chicago Rescue Plan because Chicago Rescue Plan was saying absolutely none of this money is going to go to police or law enforcement. Um, that, of course, is not you know, the mayor's calculus. And so I think that the Chicago Recovery Plan was very diff- different in degree, but similar in kind, we can say, to the Chicago Rescue Plan. Um, and Alderman d- didn't take it too well. I think that Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who was a big supporter of the Chicago Rescue Plan, the original one, said the mayor is copying our homework. Do you remember what Viegas said? Like he was sort of flattered, but at the same time. I don't know, remember what exactly he said, but I, I remember, you know, walking up to him after, you know, in, in council chambers and being like, so, you know, it, what what do you think of this? It, it looks like it looks like your you know proposal made it into the mayor's a recovery plan and basically his response was like i haven't seen this yet i i didn't know that it was going to be in here uh give me some time yeah. but so this gets into i think the last thing that we're going to talk about here today which is the relationship between the mayor's administration and the city council in particular uh the issue of aldermanic prerogative which we at the daily line follow extremely closely in terms of you know the balance of power and alderman's power versus the administration's power um I think this is something that we have seen play out a few times with civilian police oversight, with ARPA, um, with the mayor sort of championing other folks' ideas, maybe not making them feel like they are at the table, even if they are. Um, I know that during the budget conversation, we talked to members of the Latino caucus who, you know, we heard about a meeting that the Latino caucus had with the mayor that was very heated because they had a certain list of demands. And she was really dismissive and rejected a lot of them outright and was sort of offended at the idea that they would want anything other than what she had already proposed. And then, of course, a lot of them end up in Chicago Recovery Plan anyway. Another thing that I think about a lot with regard to, you know, the relationship between the mayor and the alderman is this uh, little Easter egg that she tucked into the budget that is what she called the Human Infrastructure Fund. This is $5 million, $100,000 for each alderman that was just for them to release as grants, um, however they want, they can just advertise some, you know, Brookings bucks or Dowell dollars uh, or um, whatever. You know, I think that the Black Caucus was trying to negotiate that up. They did not get that in, but there was, uh, as a condition to a lot of progressive aldermen coming on board to the budget, a subcommittee of the budget committee that is specifically going to be looking at oversight of spending in the budget, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see how that works. Um, and I, I guess I don't, I don't recall yet how often they're set to meet or what will trigger a meeting, um, of that subcommittee, but I'm pretty sure, um, I know Alderman Matt Martin, I don't know if he's the vice chair, chair. I think budget committee chair, um, uh, uh, Dowell is going to be the chair of the subcommittee. Yeah. And so I think that did provide, I don't know, because some aldermen were, were skeptical of some of the the plans to use this money. And they're also wondering how will this one time, you know, how will these one time funds be used for these programs that, you know, could be or prove to be useful, um, you know, years down the line, even after this funding runs out. So, um, yeah, I am I am very interested to see how often this subcommittee meets and what exactly um their role is and and whether I don't want to say that they're taken seriously, but whether what they advise on, you know, is actually heeded by by the budget committee and and city leadership as well. Right. I think this is also important in context with one of former inspective inspector general Joe Ferguson's parting uh, words of caution was that, including in a previous Clapcast interview with us that folks should go back and listen to if they haven't, that the city council doesn't really have effective legislative oversight, that they don't really vet or, or put a screen on what the mayor and the administration are proposing. And so I think that 
you know, some aldermen looked at this as an opportunity, this this committee to really test that and try out oversight. Um, I know that that's something that, um, you know, Matt Martin, who is also the vice chair of the Ethics and Government Oversight Committee, has has talked about. So we'll really have to see how active this subcommittee is. We know that there are other subcommittees, that structure has has not worked so well thus far, at least. I think one of the most memorable, you know, city council moments from this past year was the single meeting of the reparations subcommittee, um, which was dominated by public commenters uh, from an animal rights campaign. And we basically haven't heard anything else about potential reparations in the city of Chicago or through that subcommittee. So I don't know, maybe we'll have to see if that was a something that, that they're really going to follow through on or if that was just a fig leaf that was given to get Alderman on board um, and, and things stay the same. So we'll be watching it. But on the question of Aldermanic prerogative, I think that there are, you know, a lot of Conflicts, little questions back and forth, pushback that the the you know aldermen have against the administration and all kinds of things, especially related to like communication, collaboration, and are you checking in with me before you do something in my ward, that kind of thing. But I really think that it boils down to two kind of episodes uh, that I think of on this topic that happened this year. The first one, and this flew a little bit under the radar, but the Shy Biz Strong business relief package. This was a 90-something page bundle of deregulation measures and sort of business grant authorizations that was proposed um, in May, June, and and passed over the summer. Um, There was a fight over whether Alderman would still have control over a little talked about but pretty under the radar um, power, which is to uh, authorize sign and awning what's called public way use permits, right? So, Aaron, I mean, talk about what the process is now for I'm a business, I want to open, you know, Alex's Pizza, and I want to put a sign out in front that says like fresh pizza here, what would I have to do? Yeah, so currently, if you would like to place a sign, you know, over the public right of way, you have to apply for it. And it it takes the form of an ordinance and aldermen vote on these ordinances. And, you know, your local alderman can say, for whatever reason, no, uh, I don't want this sign approved. And, and these, um, these ordinances get passed. I mean, there's no discussion about these sign signs and signboards, uh, ordinances that get passed every, every month. Um, and I guess aldermen just assume that if it's made it on onto this um, agenda, then the local alderman approves of this uh, sign application. Um, but a critique of that is it takes a long time for businesses to <laughs> go through this. Yeah, process, I mean, this right? was this was a big uh, impetus for why they wanted to the mayor wanted to take this power out of the hands of aldermen and put to put it into the Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection. We know from covering these transportation meetings every month, they are many, many pages long, literally hundreds of these items on them. And it's just a quick vote. Okay, let's approve all of these. But in the meantime, it means that businesses are waiting on average three to four months for their permits to be approved. Um, it's been a huge thorn in the side of businesses operating in Chicago. And so Lightfoot says, we're going to try and shorten this time by having folks apply directly to BACP instead of the city council. Um, some aldermen have a problem with that, particularly Alderman Brendan Riley, who's usually you know an ally of the mayor. She's the, He's the city council president pro tem, who said, no, I think that aldermen sometimes know what the problem businesses are that don't uh, you know, should not be getting these permits and we want to be able to exert our power over them. Um, so there was a, over the summer, this is something that, that people can forget about. It was really critical, a 25 to 24 vote on which Riley succeeded, he prevailed, to peel off that one part of the ordinance into a separate ordinance, spin it off, and basically reach a compromise with the mayor where BACP would need a letter of permission. They would still have, you know, the authority would still fall upon them, but the BACP would need a letter of permission from the alderman to approve um, a 
new public way use permit. And if the alderman denies it, then the business applicant and BACP can still appeal to the whole rest of the city council to like push this through anyway. So that is what ended up passing. Um, it is sort of a, a question of, well, would the city council ever approve something over the opposition of one of their colleagues? Um, almost always the answer is no, but we got a different answer just a couple weeks ago when the city council approved a, an apartment development over the opposition of Alderman Anthony Napolitano. This is the Glenstar Apartments um, at 8535 Higgins around the corner from the Cumberland Blue Line Station out in the O'Hare area. This was, uh, yeah, a, a pretty big deal, right, Aaron? Yeah, it was big. Although, I mean, yeah, you had Alderman Anthony Napolitano saying, "We, my community does not want um, these, you know, this apartment complex to be built. Um, and I'm going to say this kind of tongue in cheek, like in this great spot where, you know, you're right next to the Cumberland Blue Line stop. Um, it's easy for people to get, you know, to and from at wherever they work, especially if they work at O'Hare or, you know, right off the blue line. Um, and he's been fighting this for, for a while, kind of saying, I know, you know, I understand you want to bring, you know, a diversity of housing and even affordable housing um, to the city, but my community doesn't want this specific development in this specific spot. Um, and I think, I mean, you had a lot of, when you had the head of the housing department saying affordable housing is a citywide issue. You can't really pick and choose um, which wards it goes into. And especially on, on, you know, the far Northwest side, it's, it's perhaps needed. So Alderman ultimately voted to approve this um, Glenstar development, despite the local Alderman saying, I don't want this. And that was, I mean, that doesn't happen often. It's a very rare occurrence. And um, I don't know, I would remember the mayor during her press conference after that kind of downplaying how rare this is and, and what this could mean um, for the future. Right. So I asked her at this press conference, do you want this to set a precedent? Because during her campaign and into the beginning of her administration, she said, we are going to end aldermanic prerogative. And she signed an executive order on day one, ending so-called aldermanic prerogative over um, routine permits and licenses and, and regular department functions. She also said that she was going to end aldermanic prerogative over zoning, the idea that any development that requires zoning approval in any ward is going to need that uh, approval from their local alderman. And I personally, this is sort of my pet issues with her that I've asked her about over and over. Are you still pursuing this? Is it ever going anywhere? Because it really seems like this is just, again, not a power that aldermen are going to give up. And she always says, you know, yes, this is still something that's on our radar and we want to attack at some point. Um, and so I asked her at, at this press conference uh, this month, do you want this to set a precedent? Is aldermanic prerogative over zoning? Um, a thing of the past now. And she said, well, no, this is specifically about this development. We need jobs and housing near the airport. And this was just a prime example of something we needed. But then she said, anywhere that aldermanic prerogative essentially is a barrier to affordable housing, we are going to make it a priority to get affordable housing built all over the city. This is very important in the context of a federal complaint that is pending right now with the um, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, by the Chicago Area Fair Housing Alliance, which has blamed aldermanic prerogative for an uneven distribution of affordable housing around the city. Um, they filed a complaint basically saying that the city is violating the, the Fair Housing Act uh, federally and needs to get after it. And so, again, this is a big thing that we're watching in 2022 is the is the mayor going to pick more of these fights? Is the housing department going to really aggressively go after um, affordable proposals or proposals with an affordable element in wards in sort of the bungalow belt and underlying areas and try to push for them maybe over the opposition of the local aldermen? Um, we really, we really don't know yet. So that's 2021. I think 
<laughs> another obviously big issue and what is really consuming the city right now and consuming the kind of public conversation as we're recording this is is public safety and the just horrifying uh, rise in violent crimes that's, that's gripping the city right now. It's sort of all that the, the political world and business world it seems like can talk about right now. I think that what I'm going to be looking at there is what, you know, how the mayor is planning on spending this federal money for the purposes of attacking this crime wave, essentially. Um, we saw that the counties has come out with this comprehensive plan to basically push all of its ARPA money into what President Tony Preckwinkle considers sort of like the long game of attacking the root causes of violence, things like homelessness and, and poverty and joblessness. Um, the mayor gave this address the other day where she talked about those issues, but really leaned more heavily on we need to crack down harder. We didn't even talk about the mayor's asset forfeiture ordinance that is kind of seems like stalled right now, but we're definitely going to be following really closely in the new year. Um, I guess I just want to ask this. I want to wrap this up. Aaron, by asking you, what do you think is the, you know, maybe a little under the cover issue that you are going to be watching really closely next year? And um, do you have a favorite or most memorable city council moment from 2021? I don't know. I, like, this is very maybe insidery, but I would like to see, I mean, okay, so we're in, what, the fifth wave of COVID right now. Omicron is is taking hold. Um I want to see if or when like committee meetings go back to quote unquote normal. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I've only covered this (laughs) city council mostly virtually. And um, I, you know, I'm just really interested to see how, what has happened, you know, during the past almost two years in the pandemic um, affects how the city operates. Um, going forward if slash when we come out of this. Um, and I mean, yeah, just in general, that's what I'm I'm looking for. What have we learned from the pandemic that will help us, you know, operate better and, and will help, you know, open city government up to <laughs> more people. I mean, being able to right. tune in and, and participate virtually, I think has been a, a huge um, benefit to not only elected officials, but to the public uh, as well. My favorite city council moment. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. I don't even know if I, I, I guess maybe my favorite city council moment was the first city council meeting that I actually got to cover um, in person, which was, you know, thrilling to go back to the office, so to say, um, because I was covering a lot of them virtually. And it's just so much more interesting to be there in person on the floor, seeing who's, you know, going over to whose desk and talking to who and um, even just getting to hear some of the comments that that aldermen mumble under their breath or will turn, you know, to the the press box and and say mm-hmm. and um, yeah, just kind of the rush of, of being <laughs> in the press room among other reporters. Um, I think, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to do with any legislation that was passed or arguments that were had, but um, yeah, just being back or being in City Hall um, has been great. Yeah. I mean, so you joined us really at the height of the pandemic and were just following things remotely with the rest of us for a long time. And then and then we finally got to go back into the, you know, in-person city council meetings when they started up again earlier this year. And it's a tricky proposition because you, like you were saying, there are a lot of benefits to everything being virtual. It's more accessible. Um, you can see everything that's going on, but you know, you can't see everything that's going on, like the sort of important side conversations and, and um, you know, personal touches and body language that we see happening in person. Um, I think that for me, I, I'm always going to remember the city council meeting um, when the, another big story from this past year that we didn't talk about, the push to rename Lakeshore Drive to what is now Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable Lakeshore Drive. The month before, the city council ultimately reached a compromise with the mayor and passed something. Um, Alderman Brian Hopkins and Ariel Reboiris deferred and published the proposal. They delayed it. And um, Alderman David Moore responded by just sending everything to the Rules Committee, dozens of ordinances, um, just knocking them off course. It was a real just like bonanza of parliamentary 
maneuvers that seemed to just sort of break down the whole system. And it was one of those moments of like, is this really how our government works? Um, I had never seen anything else like that. Then I think Anthony Beale pulled something similar or tried to at least in a subsequent month. Uh, but yeah, this legislative body never ceases to surprise. Yeah, um, what, yeah and, I guess maybe another question could be, what is your <laughs> favorite parliamentary maneuver that was pulled <laughs> this year? Oh, because man. there were lots of them and... You know, with that, you learn a whole lot about the city's um, rules of order. We have more studying up on the city council rules to do next year. We have more meetings to cover, um, lots more business to attend to. We hope that it can be in person. We can see everyone again. We can hang out with uh, reporters and sources and readers and listeners and that um, everyone will continue to stick with us and follow us as we try to illuminate what's going on in this very you know, sometimes Byzantine, uh, complicated process of, of government in the city of Chicago. Aaron, thank you for spending this this time uh, in what is now, you know, a couple of days before Christmas. And, um, you know, we'll it's fun to re- be back at it in 2022. Fun to recap everything that happened in this year that felt like five years, truly. <laughs> So that is a wrap for us in the year 2021. I just want to thank everyone who has been listening, reading, or following during this tumultuous year, whether you support our work by being a paid member or you get our daily free newsletter or listen to the Cloudcast. We could not do what we do without you, and we are so grateful to be a part of your news world. We've posted links below to all the previous Cloudcast episodes that Aaron and I mentioned, as well as the December 3rd episode of The Press Box, where we talked about the remap with election attorney Bert Odelson and WBEZ's Mariah Wolf. We want to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and safe new year. We will be back in your inbox and in your ears with new episodes of The Cloudcast in 2022. 